This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Belize, one of the world's great adventure destinations and a country that's created a comprehensive and common-sense COVID-19 safety system for travelers. Belize might be best known for its sandy beaches and turquoise waters, but its greatest gift is actually its diversity. There may be no other place on the planet with such an incredible combination of thrilling outdoor activities, natural wonders, and unique cultural history. I know this because I experienced it myself on my own trip to Belize. I'm a water lover, so I was drawn by the exceptional snorkeling and scuba diving. The country is home to the largest reef system in the Northern Hemisphere, where there are more than 500 species of fish. I had close encounters with sea turtles and spiny lobsters and a pair of black-tip reef sharks. But I had just as memorable adventures on shore, where I visited a Maya temple, explored caves with ancient artifacts, and slept in a treehouse. I also swam at the base of a waterfall and listened to howler monkeys in the rainforest. I love those guys. Today, Belize is inviting travelers to do all this and more through their new Tourism Gold Standard Program. This extensive program certifies enhanced health and safety standards of hotels, restaurants, and tour operators so you can enjoy a reliably safe vacation. They've also created a new Belize Travel Health app to make your logistics easy and hassle-free. Thanks to all these efforts, Belize was recently awarded a safe travel stamp from the World Travel and Tourism Council in recognition of the country's enhanced health and cleanliness protocols. Learn more about how you can safely experience the wonder of Belize at TravelBelize.org. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. It has been a very bad winter for avalanches in the United States. Earlier this month, 14 people died in avalanches in a single week in Colorado, Utah, California, Montana, Alaska, and New Hampshire. Most of them were backcountry skiers or snowboarders. If the trend continues, this season could quickly become the deadliest for avalanches in the last decade. The snow condition is a big factor. Early storms, followed by drought in the west, have created weak layers in the snowpack that are literal ticking time bombs, just waiting for someone to put their weight in the wrong place. Then there are the crowds. Backcountry skier and snowboarder numbers have been steadily climbing for more than a decade. But during the pandemic, they've exploded. By late last year, sales of backcountry skis were up 81%, while snowboards were up 146%. But it's not just newbies who are getting into trouble. In fact, many of the avalanche deaths this winter have actually been really experienced people, with all the education and all the right gear. To help us get a sense of what's going on, Outside contributor Stephanie Joyce is going to spend the next two episodes exploring how and why we make the decisions we do in the backcountry. Being buried in an avalanche is something I think about a lot. 
Backcountry skiing is my favorite winter activity. It might be my favorite activity, period. I've been doing it since I was a teenager. The first skis I ever bought had touring bindings. And while I think of myself as being pretty conservative, risk-wise, in the backcountry, I've definitely had a few close calls. When I was in college, I was actually caught in an avalanche while I was climbing a couloir on Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Luckily, I was anchored, and my anchor held. I got carried a little ways, and I had some bruises, but I was fine. I think at the time, I even thought it was kind of a good story. It was before people that I was close to died in avalanches. Afterwards, I told my advisor about what had happened. I must have been pretty cavalier about the whole thing in my retelling, because she started sending me videos of people buried in avalanches. This was right around when everyone was starting to get GoPros, and for the first time, it was possible to literally watch someone suffocate in an avalanche from their perspective. Because that's how most people die in avalanches. They suffocate. I guess technically, they asphyxiate. When you're buried in an avalanche, you can't move. Usually, within a few minutes, an ice mask forms around your face from the warmth of your breath on the snow that's packed in around you. That leaves the carbon dioxide you exhale with nowhere to go. And as you rebreathe that carbon dioxide, you become increasingly hypoxic until your brain starts to die. Avalanche experts will tell you that from the moment someone is buried in an avalanche, you have 15 minutes to find them and dig them out. After that, their chances of survival plummet. One out of every two people who are fully buried dies. Which is why what happened in the backcountry near Lake Tahoe last winter was a miracle. January 17th, 2020 started off like a hundred other days for Curtis Hall and Will Brown. They've been friends for a decade and have been riding together in the backcountry for almost as long. Will is the more experienced of the two. He was a ski patroller at Squaw Valley after college and has built a lot of his life around skiing. He and Curtis are both firefighters at a department in the Bay Area, and Will tries to take all of his vacation time in the winter. If it's good skiing for me, I'll go with my buddies, and if it's these warm weather cycles, then go skiing with kids. Will's kids are four and seven. When he and Curtis met in 2011, Curtis wasn't big into the mountains. But Will started inviting him on backcountry trips. In the backcountry, a lot of people, they say, find a mentor. So I kind of looked at Will to kind of not necessarily lead the way, but definitely show me the ropes of what are we getting into here. Over the years, they had logged many, many runs together. Curtis's brother, Philip, often joined them. On that January morning, the three of them met up at dawn got on their snow bikes, a kind of hybrid between a snowmobile and a dirt bike, and set off towards the line they were hoping to ski. It was probably 25 minutes on a, like a known road, and then we were cutting through trees and meadows and stuff for probably another hour to get to where we wanted to go. You know, part of the whole experience is trying to figure out new ways to get somewhere or checking out stuff on the snow bikes or the snow machines. So it was really fun. It was getting deep. We knew it was going to be a really fun run. 
A big storm the day before had dumped more than a foot of snow across the Sierras. The conditions were perfect for powder skiing and also perfect for avalanches. The Sierra Avalanche Center listed the danger that day as considerable. Will and Curtis knew that, but they had skied a lot of times when the avalanche danger was considerable. It's a frustrating question to answer and not sound kind of ignorant because if there's any kind of good skiing left, you know, that the forecast is always at least considerable. It doesn't doesn't decrease too uh, too low until everything's like really locked up and not really good powder skiing anymore. Knowing the forecast, they were prepared. They had all the standard avalanche safety equipment. Beacons, which send out a radio signal that can be used to locate someone who's been buried in a slide. Shovels, probes. They also had radios so they could stay in contact with each other. And float packs. When a skier triggers a float pack, it fills up a big bag of air. In theory, that helps the person wearing it rise to the top of the avalanche debris, so they aren't buried. When the group got to the top of the run, they had some breakfast, and Will got out a drone he brought to film them skiing the line. Eventually, they were ready to drop in. Curtis, who was the only snowboarder in the group, went first. The plan was for him to ride down to a safe spot and then wait for Philip. Will would come last. The point at which we took off, when you start going down the slope, it's one where it kind of gradually concaves over. So within 60 feet, you're out of sight of the, of the person who's at the top of the, top of the slope. Also probably not an ideal situation to be skiing in. But I had stopped about halfway down my run in some trees and... Uh, I heard the drone, and I can't remember if Will said keep going or if I just heard the drone following me still, so I decided to keep going down the hill. And then I get down to a safe location, or what I thought was a safe location, and I started uh, transitioning my gear. I hear Philip talk to Will over the radio saying he's dropping. Going one by one is considered good practice in the backcountry. The idea being that if there is an avalanche, only one person is caught. As Curtis watched, Philip skied down to him without incident. Uh, We're both just kind of chatting about how good the run was. And we hear the drone take back off to Will. And it's a good, it's a few minutes. You know, he's got to put all of his camera equipment back into his backpack before he goes. And he... He mentions that, you know, he's going to be dropping here in the next few seconds. And I remember putting either my, my gloves in my backpack or something and looking uphill and seeing this, this, this cloud of snow coming fast. And I can't remember what I said to Philip, like up or look up and, uh, just kind of hunkered there for a minute and you know after you get a good dusting of snow or someone sprays you with snow that's about as how much snow fell on us and I remember looking at Philip and I saw that he was okay I was okay 
None of our gear got thrown down. And I remember immediately going to my radio and trying to reach Will. And no response. I always ski a lot more conservative than, I guess, what I'm able to do. Um, and then when you're in backcountry, like, no big drops, no big hits. Try to ski light. So I was doing all that stuff, looking for safe zones on the way down. Um, but uh, I skied in between two rocks, and a little bit of an avalanche started. You know, like, boot deep kind of thing. So I started skiing down and out, so like 45 degrees straight to try to get out of any snow that was moving around. And then all of a sudden, uh, maybe two seconds into the to skiing out, the snow chunks got huge. Things the size of, uh, you know, a suitcase to the things the size of, you know, vehicles. This The, the chunks of snow got a lot bigger. And when that happened, uh, I went from skiing to sinking. It just like, it's kind of like when you're, you let go of the rope water skiing and you just start sinking into the water. On the way down and in, I pulled the BCA float bag trigger and heard it inflate and then just sank, sank into the avalanche. As he sank, Will realized that one of his skis had failed to release. So while the float bag was pulling him up, the ski was acting as an anchor, pulling him down into the snow. I remember on the way down thinking, man, this, this has got to be a dream because there's no way this is happening. There's no way I'm inside the avalanche. And then I remember hitting a rock really hard with my hip and thinking like, no, that's, this is definitely real. Like, I'm in the avalanche. It's time to start figuring this out. I think the first thing I recognized was I got to remain calm. You know, I got to do this for my kids. I shouldn't be bailing on them for something as dumb as skiing. So I got to get out of this. Um, and started trying to work the problem. So, I mean, the first thing was work on your breathing. I had a, uh, a face gator on. And so I wasn't immediately uh, impacted with snow into my mouth. I could turn my head easily when the snow was moving. And so I had a pretty good idea that I was going downhill head first face up. I definitely focused on swimming. I've read that in books before and you hear about it in every single avalanche class, but it, it, it totally worked. I would try to swim kind of randomly or without purpose. And then I realized that if I tried to swim in the direction of the airbag itself, the airbag and my swimming were able to overcome the ski anchor and the snow would get brighter as opposed to darker. So after hitting that rock, you know, it was probably, it felt like another 20 or 30 seconds of being inside the avalanche before it started to slow down and it slowed down quickly. I've dug through debris fields before and the, the you know, perfect powder skiing up top has turned into just a concrete mess at the bottom. So it's, it's really dense, super heavy snow. And so take the biggest, deepest breath you can and try to physically be big because as soon as it locks up, that's, that's the only real estate you're going to have. And as it locked up, I tried to make a, an air pocket uh, or at least a, an area of less dense snow in front of my face with my left hand. And then I reached up with what I was pretty sure was up with my right hand. The idea being that 
if you can stick something up through the snow and give the rescuers something to, to find, it'll increase your chances of survival. I still didn't perceive the immensity of what had just happened when I got dusted with snow. Like, oh yeah, there's a little cloud of snow, you know, Will took a turn and knocked something loose and that's what's hitting us. I was, <laughs> I was expecting him to get on the radio and say, I'm all good. Like, that's what I was expecting and it didn't happen and I just had this sinking feeling. And I remember looking to my brother and saying, switch your beacon to search. We both checked our beacons to make sure it was search. We moved maybe five, 10 feet down, saw what I thought was the end of the rubble pile. And I went and I looked and I spent probably, oh, I don't know, 10 seconds looking and looking at my transceiver to see if anything got picked up below us. And I remember looking at my brother, Philip and saying, we got to go get him." And we immediately just started hoofing it up. The whole time I'm thinking he is running out of air. And I thought about the amount of distance that needed to be covered. And I thought we need to go now if we're going to, if we're going to get to him in time. Earlier, we talked about Belize, one of the world's great adventure destinations in a country that's created a comprehensive and common-sense COVID-19 safety system for travelers. When I took my own trip to Belize, my most memorable experience was exploring a cave that held ancient Maya artifacts. It was called, well, it's best if I ask someone else to pronounce it. Aktun Tonichal Muknal. That's the cave of the stone altar. It's for those who really want to seek a thrill. That's Giselle Campbell-Steffen with the Belize Tourism Board. And she's right about the thrills. It's an hour-long hike through the rainforest to the cave with a couple of stream crossings. To enter the cave, you swim across a short pool. And then once you're inside, you wear a headlamp and a helmet. And there's more swimming. Once you reach into the main chamber, you're only allowed to wear socks. This is to preserve the integrity of the artifacts. Ceramic pottery, water vessels, tools, weapons. Their skeletal remains, as many as 14 have been discovered. Researchers believe the remains are from ancient sacrifices, dating back to around 1,100 years ago. Exploring the cave was one of the most exciting travel experiences I've ever had. And it was just one part of an amazing trip I took to Belize that also included exceptional snorkeling, relaxing days on a beach, great food, and very friendly people. Belize offers a remarkable variety of activities, including caves that are a lot easier to see, like the one that you float through in an inner tube. Learn more about the many adventures to be had in Belize and why the country was awarded the Safe Travel Stamp from the World Travel and Tourism Council at TravelBelize.org. As the avalanche slowed down, the snow locked up around Will until he was totally trapped. After maybe 15 seconds or so, 
you know, I was, I was pretty sure the snow was really done moving and I started to kind of slowly exhale. And I was just, just terrified that when I exhaled, the snow was going to collapse onto that very small breathing space that I had retained on the way down, but it, but it held. So I was able to take these ultra, ultra tiny breaths. Um, and then nothing else could move. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, just pinned on the claustrophobia scale, it was really unnerving. I could hear the guys on the radio, but my hand was maybe four inches away from it, but there was there was no chance I could reach that button. And my right hand was sticking straight up, and it was, you know, absolutely locked in place. I remember thinking, he still has time, he still has time, we just got to get to him. And we both went up on opposite sides of the slide path um just trying to get up as quickly as we could with those with those transceivers just praying that they started beeping at us with a number on them (laughs) and after what seemed like an eternity was probably only five minutes my mind started racing to he's not gonna make it and thinking about the conversation that I was going to have to have with his family. You can hear pretty well. Um, you know, it's really your only sense, so you're, you're focusing on your hearing a lot. Um, and it was just, I just didn't hear anything. It was totally, totally silent. So I would say after... You know, the timing's all tough, but I would, I think it felt like at least five minutes, maybe like eight. Um, I realized that they, they were not successful with the, with the beacon search. Um, so I'd say I thought I was going to die for probably the first during the avalanche. And then when I settled and wasn't dead yet, I thought, okay, they're going to dig me out. And then I started thinking I was going to live. And then when they didn't show up in the first five minutes or whatever, I started thinking, Okay, I think I'm going to die. It was just feeling of guilt of, uh, you know, not getting to see my kids grow up and uh, leaving my, my wife to defend herself against our two boys uh, without any help. If I'm going to die, I got to do everything I can to know that I, that I, I have, if I die, I have to know that I did absolutely everything I could to get myself out of this situation. So I started thinking like, what can I, you know, what can I do? What can I move? And um, by that time I realized that I could move my fingers on my right hand. I couldn't move my hand, but I could move the fingers. And uh, so I did that. I didn't know if it was being productive, but at least it was doing something. Um, so I, just kind of like move my fingers back and forth and try to, you know, grab snow between my fingers and flick it up. And hopefully it was going somewhere. I mean, it felt like it was going somewhere because it, it, the situation was very slowly improving. Like I could flick snow and just get a little bit more room, a little bit more room, a little bit more room. I remember thinking of, uh, I don't know why, but that movie Finding Nemo where Dory was lost all the time and she 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 said just keep swimming keep swimming just keep swimming 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 I don't know how it got in my head but I kept hearing uh Dory's voice say just keep digging and it was like 
on repeat for 15 minutes of just like, just keep digging. Just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. I didn't feel the immensity of the situation until I really started feeling the fatigue in my legs and how how wet I was from my own sweat. And it just, the transceiver that I had would beep every five minutes to let you know that it was still on search. And it would beep and I just remembered that that beep going off more than once and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, this is, <laughs> this isn't good. As the airbag deflated, it released tension in the, the snowpack. So I was able to actually start moving around, you know, relatively moving around a lot. So my breathing was getting easier as that, as that airbag deflated. It's not like deflating like when you pop a balloon. It just, it's kind of like bouncy castle material that slowly loses air if you, if you turn off the blower, but not even close to that fast. So it, it was probably 10 or 15 minutes where it lost, you know, 20% of its air pressure uh, or volume. Um, but that was, that, was, that was everything. I mean, that's a huge amount of increased uh, breathing volume when you're going from being stuck in concrete to actually having some space to, to take almost a normal breath. And, you know, eventually with wiggling and like flicking snow, just painfully, painfully slowly, I was able to kind of auger my arm around. And I, you know, I realized that I was getting breath of fresh air at that point. Um, that was kind of like a, that was a really big benchmark in my, uh, my attitude or my, my mentation was like, okay, this, this is actually, this is actually doable. I can, I can do this, you know, given enough time, I, I think I can dig myself out here. I couldn't feel my hand. Uh, it was it was wet. It was really cold, um, super numb. But I could sense that I was making progress and just kept going and going and going and going. And eventually was able to dig my right hand down to my uh, uh, radio pocket, past my face, and uh, get to the radio button. Hearing the mic click on the radio and just just that little shred of hope that he was moving around was uh, it was life-changing he got on the radio and he said i think i'm at the bottom that's when we stopped climbing and i did a like a alert and oriented questioning with him i said what's your name what day is it Who's the president? Because, like I said, I was fixated with him being above us. Once I felt that I had visualized and cleared what I thought was the bottom of the slide, it, yeah, there's no way. There's no way. So him to get on the radio, it's like, oh, no way. <laughs> and he's like, I'm, I'm sure of it. I was in the slide for a longer time. And I was like, Okay. So we turned around and went back down and dug him out. Well, he had done some significant digging of himself. How far away was he from where you had been when you started? Oof. 
I mean, 75 feet. I would estimate maybe a little less, maybe 60 feet. Just excruciatingly close. It was absolutely bizarre to get, finally get pulled out of the hole and stand up. Like there was, there was nothing really wrong. Something got stretched in my hip, but everything was in the right spot. Um, that hurt the most. Everything was sore. I mean, from top to bottom, but no real injuries. After the adrenaline kind of wore off, like I was real cold at that point, uh, uncontrolled shivering. So we swapped clothes at the bottom. Uh, my stuff was like wet slash kind of frozen and their stuff was sweaty, hot, wet. So I swapped into their stuff. We kind of all did a deck change. I got a little bit warmer. Um, and then uh, we, we put together the gear that we could find and then just started hiking out. I mean, there was, there's nothing else we could do at that point. There's no, there's nobody you can call. So it was like, we, we got to get out. Let's, let's start hiking. As they climbed, Will took in the size of the slide. It was at least 100 feet across and run vertically for more than 1,000 feet. When they finally reached the crown of the avalanche, Will saw that it had broken almost four feet deep in places. At the top of the run, they found their snow bikes and also cell phone service. I actually remember as soon as we got up to the top, I got a text from a buddy. Um, you know, firemen have a bit darker sense of humor. And I got a text from a buddy who says, hey, I hope you guys aren't dead. Um, and he forwarded me an article from Alpine Meadows. Uh, a guy had died that day almost, it could have been a, like the same exact same time in an avalanche. The Alpine Meadows ski area is just a few dozen miles from where Will was buried. The skier there was in bounds when he was caught by the avalanche. He died of blunt force trauma after being swept into the trees. Will knows the news story could have just as easily been about him. He was buried for well over 15 minutes, and the fact that he was able to dig himself out enough to get to his radio is pretty miraculous. The first thing you learn in an avalanche class is that you can't dig yourself out of an avalanche. I just just barely survived. A lot of it was luck, some of it was equipment, past life experience, but it's been said before, don't make the same mistake I did. With hindsight, the mistakes they made are pretty obvious. They were known avalanche terrain on a day with a bad forecast, skiing a line where any avalanche, no matter the size, was likely to have huge consequences. And I'll be honest, when I read the report they filed with the Sierra Avalanche Center, my first thought was what the hell were they thinking? Implicit in that, of course, is the idea that I would make better decisions. But isn't that what we all tell ourselves? The truth is that it's easy to get complacent. I remember on ski patrol, you know, you ask the obvious questions, I don't want to get caught in an avalanche. I'm scared what's going to happen kind of thing. And they say, honestly, as a new guy, you're so cautious. Like you, nothing really happens to the new guys. It's usually the guys in like the seven to 12 year range because they've developed uh, 
confidence from doing it hundreds, if not thousands of times. And that's when they get bit big. So I think I was in that window where, you know, we'd literally skied, you know, thousands of runs together in the backcountry. And it's been fine so many times that why wouldn't it be okay again? You know, it obviously wasn't that day. So just kind of resetting and then recalibrating all our um, safety concerns back to where they should be as, as opposed to being overly confident from having been lucky so many times before. And, you know, skiing's still fun. Just look at it a little bit differently. Will survived. He went home to his family. He lived to ski another day. But avalanches often don't have such happy endings. On next week's episode of the podcast, I talked to professional ski mountaineer Caroline Gleick about how losing her half-brother to an avalanche has shaped her career and her approach to risk. Just seeing the grief of my parents, I felt a really large responsibility when I started my own backcountry skiing career when I was 18 to never put them through that kind of pain again. This episode was produced by Stephanie Joyce and edited by me, Michael Roberts. Music by Robbie Carver. This episode of the Outside Podcast was brought to you by Belize, one of the world's great adventure destinations and a country that's created a comprehensive and common-sense COVID-19 safety system for travelers. Learn more about how you can safely experience the wonders of Belize at TravelBelize.org.